It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. I am, of course, Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Pandora if you're in the U.S., Stitcher Works, maybe somewhere else. While you're there, please remember to rate the show, and if you've got a little bit of extra time, give it a review. Now, this is episode two of the 300 million yen heist uh, story. Sorry it took a little longer to get this ready than I was hoping. Um, Some tendonitis rendered my right arm completely useless for a few days, so that kind of pushed things back. Sorry about that, but we're all better now. Got a steroid shot in the shoulder, and we're all good. So, like I said, this is episode uh, part two of the episode, so make sure you go back and listen to episode one if you haven't already. I mean, or not. Do whatever you want. I mean, it's your life. If you want to listen to podcasts all out of order, who's going to stop you? Nobody. That's who. If you enjoy eating your hot dog sideways, you can do that too, you weirdo. But seriously, I'm not going to recap, so if you want to know what I'm talking about, go listen to episode one of this story, the 300 million yen heist. So, as I said last time, the most common theory was that this audacious heist was pulled off by a single perpetrator, based on a few key points. Now, I'll lay out the points for a single perpetrator from the weakest to the strongest, in my opinion. Point one. The police pointed out that there is no sign or indication anywhere that there was any sort of dispute over how to divide the cash. Nothing ever bubbled up out into the open so the cops could get a hint of it, I guess. Which, I mean, how would you even know? I mean, if a small group did it and they agreed early on how to divide it evenly, it doesn't seem like a big deal. And even if there was a dispute and if the criminals were smart about it, they would keep that to themselves. So it's kind of a weird point if you ask me this. There's no dispute, so it must have been one person. But that that is one of the the so-called evidence that this was a single person pulling this off, but that's point one. Point two, the tarp that was covering the fake Shirobai got tangled and dragged behind the bike when the man driving it took off after the bankers. Now, the argument here is that if there were another person involved, that this kind of mistake wouldn't have happened, which, no. That just means that at that particular site, there was one person. At the site where the, 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 the man who pulled off the actual, you know, taking the money from the bankers, yeah, there was one person at that site. But that doesn't mean the whole heist was one single person, right? So, you know, a smart, a smart gang would minimize the number of people in one place to the absolute minimum needed at a particular time. So this point also to me seems just dumb. I mean, yeah, it was dumb. It's a dumb argument. Now, the third point suffers from a similar problem, though it's at least a little bit more convincing. So, as the suspect made the car change from the Cedric, which, remember, that's that's the banker's car, from the Cedric to the dark blue Corolla, he took off at high speed and very nearly got into an accident with a father and son who were driving in their car. Again, the argument is that if there had been another person, you know, like a designated getaway driver, the car wouldn't have been swerving so much. Right? The thought is that the thief was trying to deal with the money at the same time as he was driving, making him kind of a distracted driver. And this at least starts to sound plausible. You know, having two people there would have made sense, you know, the, the, the driver and the bag man. I mean, it makes sense. It makes so much sense that there are actually terms for it, right? You know, and on top of that, the father and the son who were driving, the, the ones who almost got into the accident with the, with the uh, runaway, with the uh, stolen car, they were landscapers, if that makes any difference. I mean, it doesn't, but, you know, whatever. So the father and son, they stated that there was only the driver in the car, no one in the passenger seat. They also stated that the driver had a young man's haircut, kind of long and shaggy, 
probably not unlike hairstyles in the West in the late 60s. Um, and the man was also wearing dark clothes, according to these, these, these to the father and son. So this to me is at least the strongest argument that it was a single person, right? No division of labor when it was probably needed, right? It would be better to have two people here, the, the driver and the bagman. But that's only based on the eyewitness testimony of this father and son. And that's the only, you know, thing saying there's only one person. It's this eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is not nearly as sure of a thing as a lot of people think, seem to think it is, right? Look it up. Eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable. You know, everything else, you know, arguing for a single thief is shaky at best, if you ask me. And the only, you know, strong evidence for a single thief is eyewitness testimony, which again, is not reliable, at least not nearly as reliable as people seem to think it is. Now, personally, I tend to think that it was likely a small group of people, you know, somewhere two to four people, you know, not, not a big group, but enough to get all the vehicles in place where they needed to be when they needed to be. But like I say, though, the single perpetrator theory was the more widely accepted idea at the time. So a lot of the investigation was based on that thinking. And today, let's talk about who the prime suspects were. So once the evidence had been collected from the initial three sites, remember site four uh, didn't become known until about four months after the heist. So initially, police began the investigation, searching for suspects, and almost immediately things went wrong. So the first composite sketch of the suspect wasn't actually a composite sketch, right? It was an image, actually, actually I'm using the word sketch. It wasn't actually a sketch. It was a composite photograph. It wasn't actually a composite. It was a image of a single early suspect in the case, right? It was just one person. It wasn't actually a composite. And it was made from the eyewitness accounts of, you know, multiple people. Again, this is this is all in scare quotes here. We'll talk about some of the problems with this. Now, early on in the case, a young man who was the son of a police officer was a prime suspect. So he was 19 years old, which is still a minor in Japan. Um, the age of majority was 20. So this, so this young man was still a minor. And this young man uh, was dubbed Juvenile S. I'll just call him S, you know, for, for simplicity. So S was reported to be something of a juvenile delinquent. He was apparently the head of a gang of youth um, in Tachikawa, which was another city in this kind of western Tokyo suburban area. And he had a bit of a history stealing cars. Now, S's father was, as I mentioned, a police officer. And not just any police officer, but, you probably guessed by now, his father was a motorcycle cop. We'll talk about him in just a bit and the case for and against his involvement, but his name came up very early as a suspect. So the police took the four bank employees posing as detectives to his house. And this is like the day or the like the day after, or maybe the two days after the, 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 the crime. So the police took the bankers posing as detectives to the house of S. And when the bankers saw S, they said, that looks like him. And the police used his face for the image. And this image was sent out all over the country, you know, at once it was com compiled. But very shortly after that, the bankers went to the police and confessed that they were not sure of the face of the thief. You know, one of the men confessed that his view had been obstructed by the door pillar, right? The, 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 the 
the frame where the door is, you know, there's that pillar that you can't, if you're in the back seat, you may not get a good view. So one man confessed he couldn't actually see the face of the man who pulled off the heist. And another of the four said that he had been fleeing and was in a panic, so he couldn't really make an identification. Right? So there's this speculation that the men felt ashamed, right? Why couldn't they remember the face of the man who made off with 300 million yen, right? They were in charge of this 300 million yen. They failed. So maybe they're feeling some shame, right? And so that's the idea is that they said, okay, well, we have to identify someone as the thief. And so the police bring them to this, to, to S's house and say, does this look like the man who pulled off the heist? And they say, I don't actually know, but sure, yes, he does. So like I say, eyewitness testimony, not actually so great. Like I say, look it up. Eyewitness testimony is not good. The fallibility of eyewitness testimony. You'll find a lot of articles, both popular and scholarly, about this problem. So anyway, the image was eventually withdrawn officially from the investigation, but that didn't stop the image from spreading every time a new story or report came out. So, as it might be clear by this point, and if you've listened to the first episode, hey, you sideways hot dog eaters, go back and listen. Anyway, if you've been paying attention, it's pretty clear that the police made a lot of mistakes in this case. Had they actually done things the right way, they probably would have had at least a better chance to solve the case. But there were a series of mistakes, let's say. So, we've got the not actually a composite composite image of the suspect. How did the police proceed? Who were the prime suspects? Let's get into that. As the investigation began, police basically decided that any young person living in suburban Tokyo was potentially a suspect. So they would go door to door, all the apartments in the suburban Tokyo area where many, many students live. There's a bunch of universities kind of in that area. Um, not, not like, you know, Tokyo University, but some, there, there are a lot of kind of smaller universities out in kind of Western Tokyo. It's cheaper, right? It's the suburbs, so it's not the same prices. You've got a lot of students out there. And so there are a lot of suspects. And... That's how they ended up with that suspect list of 110,000. I saw another list, almost 120,000 suspects, right? That's how they ended up with that many, because they were just going door to door, and anyone, a young man, university age, was probably, that. that's probably how they got that number. And some people have speculated that this was actually something of a cover. Now, it's here's a little quick aside I know it's hard to believe for a lot of people who, you know, if you know Japan, or it's modern Japan, but the late 1960s, there were a lot of student radicals. You know, there were a lot of pretty far out, hardcore leftist communist groups that existed in Japan at this time. Now, there's another story that I want to get into at some point. Um, there's an incident in Gunma Prefecture where some members of one Japan, uh, one of the new leftist movement, they killed some of their comrades for not being leftist enough. Like they beat them and strapped, like chained them to trees and left them to die in the winter. Uh, that yeah, that happened in Japan, right? That's hard. Say it's hard to believe when you th- look at you know modern Japan, but in the late '60s, early '70s, this kind of stuff was going on. So, you know, Japan late '60s, early '70s. It was a lot more politically active with in the youth culture than it is now. And this heist takes place in that time period. So some people have speculated that the widespread canvassing and, you know, the seemingly blanket inclusion of anyone who was, you know, of this age group as a suspect, it was actually a cover for spying on leftist radicals by the police, which... I mean, sounds plausible, if not likely, but yeah. Anyway, 
that that's kind of just a little side. So that's kind of how where we get that, you know, that huge number of suspects. And yes, the police, of course, did, of course, do all the standard, you know, fingerprint checks and whatnot. But they couldn't get anything definitive from the evidence. Now, they also released the the, the, the known serial numbers from all the, the, uh, the bills, the money that was stolen. But apparently that didn't turn anything up either. So, the prime suspects, who were they? What became of them? As I mentioned before, S was one of the earliest suspects. He was known to be the head of a gang who stole cars. Uh, two motorcycles and at least two but maybe as many as five cars had been stolen in the heist. So, there's kind of a connection there. S's dad was a motorcycle cop, so S would likely have had better knowledge of what a motorcycle cop's bike and uniform looked like than most people. Now, he was also friends with a guy who had used a road flare as imitation dynamite in an incident at a supermarket earlier that year, and... Allegedly, S had talked about robbing either a Toshiba or Hitachi delivery of cash in the past. So, whether or not he was the actual thief, you can see why he was a suspect. There's a lot of good circumstantial evidence to say we need to look further into this guy's case. That seems like, you know, pretty obvious to anyone. S needs to be checked out whether or not he is the actual thief. There were, however, multiple reasons to doubt his involvement as well. Now, one, the search of his house and his belongings turned up exactly zero money. Two, the night before the heist, and actually several nights before the heist, he had been out drinking in Shinjuku, which is down in central Tokyo. Remember, this is out in western suburban Tokyo. He had been out and stayed the night in Shinjuku, drinking, which made it extremely unlikely that he was able to be in Fuchu to position all the vehicles all by himself on the morning of the heist. Now, again, what if he had a confederate or two? That would be possible. But again, remember, the prevailing theory was that it was one person. So, anyway... Yeah, if he'd had a confederate, it's possible, but if he didn't have a confederate, he could not have done it by himself, most likely. Now, the third point against his involvement was his blood type didn't match what investigators had been able to determine from the threatening lever- letters, right? There were those, those threatening letters that came to the bank and also the previous, um, to the, the, the agricultural cooperative. So... I guess the saliva on the stamp, they're able to at least get a blood type. If not, you know, DNA testing wasn't a thing yet, but they could at least get blood type apparently from saliva. And, you know, according to what the police thought, S, his blood type did not match what they could get from the threatening letters. So, again, a strike against his his being the only culprit in this. Now, also at the time... At the time of the uh, first threatening letters, you know, that were sent to the Tama Agricultural Cooperative, they were believed to have been sent by the same person, right, as the the letter that came to the bank. Now, at the time those first letters were sent, S was actually in a juvenile detention center. And his handwriting didn't match, you know, the, the, the sample of the letters now, remember, I, I know I said that the uh, the letters were, you know, had characters cut out from magazines, but there were apparently were also at least some handwritten letters kind of make the connecting parts of Japanese. Japanese is kind of a confusing language, but to get the exact wording, he probably needed to write, you know, some bits in, in, in standard writing. And also, I'm sure the address would have been written handwritten because, you know, using cut out... Uh, magazine letters for an address is a little suspicious, you know, right off the bat. But anyway, the S's handwriting didn't match, you know, whatever samples they were able to get from the letters. So while S certainly seemed a very probable suspect, there's enough reasonable doubt, you know, if if he is the sole culprit. If he's doing this by himself, there's enough to doubt that he did it. 
Now, regardless of all this, he did end up as the model for the police sketch, as I mentioned. Sorry, police image, the, the composite image. Okay, it's not, it wasn't a sketch. It was an image. It was an image. It was a composite photograph. So that was S. And then there was S's fellow gang member, who was an 18-year-old juvenile who was dubbed a juvenile Z. Now, Z was Z. I'm sorry if you're from, from a non-U.S. Uh, English-speaking country, but Z, I'm from the U.S., whatever. Z was also from the general area, right? Of the, so he would have known the area just like um, S did. He was also part of the group that, you know, had a history of stealing cars. And he also knew the guy who talked about using a flare not the, the guy who had used a, fl a flare as an imitation dynamite at the supermarket. So he had a lot of the same connections that S did. Now, additionally, shortly after the heist, Z bought a new car and seemed to have improved financial situation. So he seemed to have come into some money. However, his blood type and handwriting were also not matches for the evidence. So his involvement was not as strongly associated as S's was um, for whatever. Maybe because he did, I think it was also something like timing, like Z was a much uh, later, um, a later suspect as the police had problems finding anyone else. But anyway, yeah, so S and Z, they're from this, this gang of juvenile delinquents who like to boost cars or whatever. So, the police had other serious suspects who were not involved with this Tachikawa gang. Besides, you know, the S and Z of this Tachikawa, that's the place where the gang operated. Now, before I get into the next suspect, just a quick warning. Some of the terms that I might use here are problematic because Japanese, the Japanese language and Japanese culture yet don't quite have proper terminology like good terminology for the lgbtqia plus community um it's getting better but it's still not quite there in like general standard usage um and the sources the source i'm using for this section is the japanese wikipedia but um it uses kind of a uh, odd term and i'm not ex the problem is i don't exactly know how to translate it because there's some multiple possibilities um so that's just a little warning and i'm sorry for using a slightly to me kind of an offensive term but i don't know what else to use because like i say i don't know exactly how it translates um and i'll get into that so one of the other suspects is listed as a gay boy that's the term that I, i'm not really happy with but i'm not sure what else to say um now the Wikipedia link for gay boy goes to the Japanese page for transgender. But the dictionary definition of, of that term, gay boy, could also mean an effeminate gay man, possibly a gay man who works at a gay bar. Um, it's not exactly clear. And what I have read... It seems like probably that last one, like a gay man who works at a gay bar, is probably the most likely. Um, or maybe it's some combination of the other dev all the definitions. I mean, not that it's hugely relevant, but yeah, that the it's it's yeah that that's the term. And there was another suspect who was possibly well. Let's put, it, let's put it this way. It's not exactly clear and it's not exactly relevant, the exact nature of the relationship, but it would seem that S was in some sort of relationship with this person, with this gay boy. Um, was it a romantic relation? Was it a platonic relation? I'm not exactly sure. I would guess romantic, but I'm not, again, I'm not sure. Um, and this is an, this is another kind of a little twist, not a huge one, because this this person isn't a never really a, a prime suspect, but certainly uh, it, it is important because this person also offers S something of an alibi. Um, 
So anyway, yeah, J- Japan, so it's not, Japan lacks the, 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 that really virulent homophobia, you know, like the Westboro Baptist Church. We, there's not that in Japan. But at the same time, it isn't the most welcoming community for, you know, welcoming society for the LGBTQIA plus community. It, it's not. It's not horrible, but it's not great either, I guess is what I'm saying for, for people in this, for people in the rainbow. Um, so, yeah, again, it's not really directly relevant to the facts, but certainly the cultural norms would probably have informed the actions of the people involved with the case. Now, thankfully, the investigation, right, the, the, this this person, like I say, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop using the terms. Um because he was referred to as K. So K, and I should say this, if he was or is, I mean, he probably still is alive. So if K is transgender and I'm mislabeling the pronouns, right? I sincerely apologize, right? If K is actually transgender as transgender woman or non-binary or whatever, I apologize, but that's just this is this is a problem with Japan, like with Japanese. There's no good language right now. It's 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 a little lacking in this area. Anyway, so like I say, K, if you are a trans woman or a non-binary person who does not use male pronouns, I apologize. Please forgive me. But I'm going to use male pronouns because my best guess is that K was slash is a gay man but again i could be wrong so if i'm wrong i'm sorry anyway so k and s had stayed at k's place in central tokyo and had been out drinking at the bar where k worked in shinjuku next day not just the night before the heist but several days in a row you know but leading up to the heist according to k s had left from central tokyo the day of the heist probably at around 8 a.m., which would have made getting the cars into place impossible for S to do all by himself. However, K's recollection was not based on looking at any clocks, but based on the sun. So not a terribly precise way to tell time. He just looks, well, okay, when I took S back to the train station, the sun was here, so it was probably 8 o'clock. Again, not great precision in your time telling but that was according to k probably when s went back home was around 8 a.m not enough time to get all the cars ready for the heist because that started a little bit after nine so anyway police thought it that police thought that it was at least possible that k had been an accomplice in the heist so he was a little older i think he was 26 at the time which would match some of the eyewitnesses who said that they saw an older man, not a teenager. And maybe it could explain the earring in one of the stolen cars. Again, as I say, I'm not entirely sure what to make of the terminology used to describe Kay. Maybe transgender, maybe cross-dresser, an effeminate man wearing an earring. I don't know. Um, I'm really not sure. And again, I apologize for any mistakes on my part. Now, it was also the case that Kay seemed to have come into some money not too long after the heist, which afforded him the chance to buy a couple of nice condos and then build a very nice house seven years later. Um, Police investigated and determined that Kay was innocent, and according to Kay, the money that he got came from a foreign patron, Okay, Um, but yeah, and so about a year after the incident, after the heist, Kay apparently had gone overseas, spent some time overseas, made some sort of friends who had some money. And like I say, it never sounds like Kay was a prime suspect. Um, He was certainly never suspected of being the man on the fake Shirobai, as far as I can tell. But certainly, I think police probably investigated him as a possible accomplice before they decided, okay, probably just one person. But 
Yeah. And if Kay's word is to be taken seriously, which I see no reason not to, um, it's very likely that S would not have been able to get back to Fuchu in time for the heist. So there's an alibi. Other seriously investigated suspects included a trio of brothers from a nearby city of Hino. Um, they were apparently really into motorcycles and had a garage that could easily have been used for painting and customizing the bike. Um, they also had some connections to a gang uh, that was really into motorcycles, but there was only this kind of scant circumstantial evidence. So they were pretty quickly dismissed as as suspects. And, you know, as I said, the total suspect list was over 100,000 people. You know, most of whom were probably, I'm I'm guessing, very quickly, dis- quickly dismissed as actual suspects in this heist. Maybe more for spying on leftists, but again... That's a that's that's a topic for another podcast, and I promise I will talk about at least some of the leftist activity of the '60s. And there was one more suspect whose story needs to be told. So, about a year after the heist, police were no nearer to solving it than they had been when it had happened. So it was decided that the threatening letters needed to be re-examined. And the way the letters were written, so they were using katakana, and they were putting spaces between the words. These, these two elements led the police to believe that the person who wrote the letters had experience with a specific type of Japanese typewriter. Now, for those of you who don't understand how the Japanese language, like written Japanese, works... Don't worry too much about it. Um, just know that Japanese typewriters were fairly uncommon. Japanese is not a language that lends itself to typewriters. So this is something that would have actually been pretty notable, right? Being able to use a typewriter in Japanese in the late 60s is not something most people would probably be able to say they could do. Most people didn't use typewriters. It's just not a language that lends itself to that but like i say the way the letters so so the letters right those threatening letters there were a mix of characters cut out from magazines with some handwritten handwritten parts apparently but they were written in such a way as to suggest familiarity with typewriters so the police did some searching and they found a 26 year old man who was, I guess he would have been 25 at the time of the heist, but 26-year-old man when they found him. And he, there was a 26-year-old man who was working at the Japanese office of the Canadian Wheat Board. They were It was a, a concern, a company, you know, promoting wheat from Western Canada. I don't remember exactly where, but somewhere in Western Canada. The Canadian Wheat Board. And he was working at the Japanese office. And this young man was familiar with typewriters. And he looked similar enough to the suspect image, which, remember, was a BS image, but all the same, this guy, Suspect A, as he became, you know, as he came to be referred to, he looked enough like it that he became a prime suspect. Now, there were other reasons that police had to suspect him. So he lived in Fuchu, which, again, that's the city where this heist happened. And he had worked as a driver. He had experience driving both milk delivery trucks and taxis. So he would likely have been familiar with the area of the heist. And he would have had the driving skills to pull off the heist, you know, that involved a lot of vehicles. On top of that, his blood type matched that found in saliva on the back of the stamps, I guess, on the threatening letters. Again, I don't know how this works in 1968, but... They can get blood types, apparently. And apparently his voice was said to be similar to that of the threatening phone calls. Um, remember, like, back before the heist, there were the besides the uh, letters, there were some phone calls to the agricultural cooperative. So apparently his voice was similar enough that... I mean, I'm not sure that anyone actually recorded the calls, because if they didn't... This seems like completely useless evidence. You can't see me, but I'm doing the the, the finger quotes thing. Evidence, you know, a year old 
memory of a threatening phone call doesn't seem reliable, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, his voice apparently sounded similar to the threatening phone calls, if that means anything. And there were some other circumstantial bits of evidence, you know, that would link A to the heist possibly, right? His old high school uniform had a cap that was very similar to the one found at the scene of the heist. Um, you know, he had had some financial difficulties so that gave him some, uh, you know, motivation, right? Because apparently he'd had to pawn off some of his belongings for cash. You know, and that, there were some other stuff that circumstantially maybe could possibly be evidence, but a lot of it seemed kind of circumstantial and dubious at best. I, more of the dubious side than the possible side, but, you know, whatever. And also somewhat dubious, okay, extremely dubious, I should say. Um, the men from the bank who were in the car, right, the four men, they said that the photo of A was the closest match to the man who pulled the heist. Remember, eyewitness testimony is not very good, even in the best of circumstances. And this is almost a year after the fact that A comes up as a suspect. And the bank employees, you know, they must have also been seeing the composite image. Even if they knew it was not actually, you know, what they saw at the crime. It wasn't the person they saw. It was it was S, you know, who the police said, oh, here's a suspect. Does this look like the man who... They said, yeah, okay. And so that became the, you know, composite image. And so then, okay, S is ruled out. So what about A? Is A look... And this composite image just keeps being a big pain in this... So, but anyway, yeah. So these bank employees, so even though they know the composite image is BS, right... They have been seeing it for a year, and subconsciously it must have had some effect on their recollection of the event, right? Maybe they came to believe that actually that was what the face of the the culprit looked like, and A was close enough that, okay, well, sure. And so I'm sure for the police at the time, who remember, they weren't making any progress on the country's biggest heist ever, right? The word of four eyewitnesses must have been good enough to go forward with the investigation. Now, all of this led the lead detective on the case to say that he was 80% sure that it was A who had pulled off the heist. Even though the police's handwriting expert said, no, A's handwriting is definitely different from the writing on the samples in the threatening letters. And there was also the fact that A's financial difficulties didn't show any sign of improving. So, where did the money go? Why isn't he using the money he took? I don't know. Regardless, the investigative unit decided to proceed with the investigation of A, albeit in a very low-key, kind of behind-the-doors, clandestine kind of way. But the secrecy didn't last very long. So the Mainichi Shimbun, which is one of Japan's biggest newspapers, ran a big story with a headline proclaiming, Former driver from Fuchu, the prime suspect in a 300 million yen heist. And the article made it seem as though A was guilty. Not the finest journalism. Definitely not the finest police work either. The leak for this top secret super classified investigation to the, the the newspapers was apparently from one of the top detectives. So a man named Hiratsuka Hachibe, he had been brought in special for the case. He was kind of one of the, the, the preeminent police detectives in the country, apparently. So, yeah. So the head of the investigative unit, not, not, not Hiratsuka, but a different officer, got word of the story late, on December 11th, okay? And this is the night before the story was going to be run. So the scoop, this this, this news scoop, forced the police to move, fearing that A may be a flight risk if they didn't take him into custody right away. So early the morning 
of December 12th, the day this story is coming out in the newspaper, the police went to A's house where he voluntarily went with them for questioning. So the police took A not to the Fuchu police station, but to the Mitake precinct station to avoid the press corps, which A apparently agreed to. So far, I mean, this that does make some sense to me, right? Because the press corps would be camped out around the, 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 the central police station in the area of the heist. Okay, let's go to a different police station. Not too far away, but, you know, far enough away that avoid the, the, the media circus. That makes some amount of sense. I can understand that. A also apparently agreed to this and understood that same, for the same reason, I'm presuming. What, he pro- what I'm sure he didn't agree to was the way the questioning would go. So from 8 a.m. until 1 a.m. the next morning, A was verbally assaulted by the police and, yes, physically assaulted too. So Hiratsuka, so the detective who had leaked the story to the newspaper and the other cops, yelled at A. They yanked his hair. They forced him to kneel in stress positions. And they beat him so that he was bleeding from his mouth. A, he, he had supplied an alibi. And he said that he had been taking an interview, like a, a kind of a test interview kind of thing, for a company in downtown Tokyo at the time of the heist. But the cops couldn't find the company he was talking about, so they figured it for a lie. I'm not sure how much they actually looked for the company, and we'll get to that in a minute, but they didn't believe him. Now, by this point, A was in all the newspapers, television, radio, broadcast, everywhere. And one officer, so a man named Muto Mitsuo, began talking to the papers and basically painted A as the culprit. You know, despite the investigation not being done, I mean, barely getting started, to be perfectly honest, in A's case. Now, near the end of A's first day of questioning, the police decided that they couldn't let him go because they thought he might destroy evidence. So they charged him with two unrelated crimes. You know, both, they were threatening behavior, apparently, both of them. One of them stemmed from an incident with a department store bill collector, and one was from an incident with his landlord. However, both the land uh, the landlord and the department store said that the incidents were taken care of, and it was water under the bridge. Everything was fine. And they said it was very regrettable that the police had arrested A for these two incidents. On the 13th, the newspapers, both morning and evening editions, Japan actually to this day still has morning and evening editions of the newspapers. Um, but so both morning and evening editions of the newspapers were running stories with A's name, photo, place of work, home address, basically saying he was the man who'd pulled off the heist. So basically, A got doxxed by Japan's news media. Now, I should note that of all the newspapers, the Asahi Shimbun was the one paper that was saying that there was at least some doubt as to A's guilt. So, yay, Asahi Shimbun for kind of maybe sort of doing the thing you're supposed to do in your job. Good for you, especially compared to everyone else. Definitely good for you compared to everyone else. Um, Go Asahi, I guess. So, yeah, on the 13th, so the day that A's name is now out, out in the world, A was questioned starting at 7 a.m. Now, presumably it was a lot more of the same. Right? A was sleep-deprived. He hadn't been able to sleep that night, essentially, at all. Um, according to his later, his later recollections of the event, uh, he contemplated suicide as he was waiting for that day's interrogation. Now, as I mentioned... A's name and face were now all over the news, which is pretty shitty considering he hadn't officially been charged with anything related to the heist. But something good did come out of this really bad journalism. So the man who had been A's interviewer that day of the heist remembered him and it checked out with the company's records. So apparently the interviewer's son was an alum of the same high school as A, 
So that that kind of stuck with the interviewer's mind. So he went back, checked the records at his company, and sure enough, yes, A had interviewed that day. So A, uh, so so the man who interviewed A contacted the police, and finally, at 11 p.m. on the 13th, you know, after more than 40 hours in police custody, A was finally released and allowed to go home. So the officers involved, you know, Muto, um, Hiratsuka, and some others, they said, well, sure, he didn't do it, but A wasn't completely innocent. I mean, they said, essentially, he's not completely innocent. The culprit hasn't been found yet, so he's probably connected somehow. So, yeah, I mean, I think NWA probably has something to say about that kind of attitude from the police. So, yeah. I mean, shitty behavior by the cops. But A was finally allowed to go home after, you know, two days, essentially, in police custody. You know, they and the police never told A the reason that they let him go. You know, they let him believe that they just believed what he had said about being in an interview. You know, they didn't deem it worth mentioning that the company had contacted them saying, yeah, A had an interview with us that day. He couldn't have pulled off the heist. So, yeah. Ice Cube, you tell them. Mm-hmm. And in case anyone cares, so the newspapers issued some real half-assed apologies, you know, saying that they were sorry for believing the police without actually fact-checking any of that BS. So, yeah. So the Japanese Bar Association, right, the lawyer kind, not the mixed drink kind, stood up for A, pointing out that both the cops and the press had failed A miserably. So here's a case of lawyers doing good. So yay. Good job. There are good lawyers. And they helped A get settlements from both newspapers and cops. So that's something, I guess. Unfortunately for A, his life would be forever marred by the whole spectacle. He had a really hard time getting and holding a job after the affair, right? Because he was forever followed by the label of being the culprit in Japan's biggest heist, despite it not being true, right? All those news stories stuck. In 1987, almost 20 years after the heist, he and his ex-wife issued a joint request to the major media companies to refrain from using images of his arrest and to keep his name out of the papers. And most of the media companies did agree to do so 20 years too late. Sadly, it was too late. In 1989, his wife had a brain hemorrhage and died, probably at least in part due to the stress of the whole situation. After her death, A's behavior reportedly got stranger and stranger. In 2008, at a guest house in Naha, Okinawa, a stabbed himself in the stomach and jumped from this fifth floor window, falling to his death. Before he died, he had sent a letter to his child. I'm, I'm not sure if it was a son or a daughter, but in his letter, he explicitly stated that the connection to the 300 million yen heist case was the reason for his suicide. And A's death wasn't the only collateral damage. So two police officers working on the case reportedly died from overwork. And then there's S. Remember S, the young man whose father was the motorcycle cop? Right, the one who was used for the composite, but not actually composite, image of the culprit? He died very early on in the investigation, also supposedly by suicide. His death happened on December 17th, 1968, less than a week after the heist, and four days before the composite image was made public. He died from potassium cyanide poisoning. Allegedly, he used potassium cyanide that his father had purchased. I'm not sure why you would do that, but there are legitimate reasons to use, you know, there are uses for potassium cyanide. But there is some speculation that S did not commit suicide. So his acquaintances said that he wasn't the type who would ever even consider suicide. So Maybe he was poisoned. I mean, it's unclear, but maybe he committed suicide. Maybe he was poisoned. We don't know. 
So, if you see anyone saying that this was a victimless crime, and you will see some people saying that it was, it was the perfect crime, no one got hurt, that's not true. I mean, sure, the actual heist didn't hurt anyone. You know, insurance covered the loss of cash. The employees at Toshiba got their bonuses. So maybe it's maybe it's fair to say that the crime was victimless, but the investigation was not. The investigation has at least five deaths you can attribute it to. S, A, A's wife, the two police officers who died from overwork, So it's not just a fun story of a successful heist. There were real-world consequences for people whose lives were touched by the case and forever ruined. Right? Sometimes the victims aren't readily apparent. You have to scratch the surface to find the truth. Sorry to be a little bit of a downer here, but yeah, it's, it's not a victimless crime. As for who did it, well, I don't know. My best guess, S was involved, but it wasn't a solo job. I mean, maybe it was his gang that pulled it off, or maybe not. I really don't know. There's not enough to go on. You know, I'm not going to crack the case here. It's not going to happen. But, yeah, I I wish I could offer some big grandiloquent statement about, you know, what the 300 million yen heist tells us about Japanese criminal justice or Japanese society more generally, but I'm not the person to do that. At least not right now. I'm not that person, you know, something about criminal justice reform or something about the 99% conviction rate, you know, conformity, whatever. But I mean, nothing's as simple as that, obviously. I mean, sure. Those are all valid points to look at when it comes to Japan, but You know, they don't really do the country justice. I mean, no pun intended. But, you know, something certainly can be said about this case, but I'm just not sure what it is right now. If you have any ideas about it, you know, leave a comment on Twitter or Facebook. Tell me, what do you think this tells us about Japan? And that is where we are going to leave the story. So please remember to subscribe, rate, review, the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods uh the podcast is available on pretty much all the major platforms apple google spotify stitcher pandora probably some others that pick it up um yeah if it's not on your favorite platform just let me know i will figure out how to get it there and you can find the twitter for this podcast at just another cast you can email the show at justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com. And that is all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I am out. Peace. Peace.